0: When I was a little boy, although centuries ago, I, I had a three-wheel bicycle, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But this limited me to the back garden and down the avenue, into the cul-de-sac, round the corner, where all us kids made newsness of ourselves. After that, I graduated to a blue, gearless two-wonder. Very good in its own way, but limited. I wanted a bigger bike, but sad to say, I couldn't reach the pedals, so I was stuck with my two-wheeler, that reliable but uncool bike, for much longer than I wanted. However, when I was a teenager, for a Christmas gift, I had a proper bike, and it was my pride and my joy. I cycled everywhere on it. It gave me a great sense of freedom. Instead of catching a bus or having to walk, I could travel farther, more cheaply, and much, much more quickly. I rode to school on it until one morning, a half-asleep driver knocked me off it. He did pay out some insurance, but it seemed to take months before I was back in the saddle. This bike of mine, now get this, it had five gears. The cooler kids, the richer ones, come from Sutton Coalfield. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Whereas I came from Great Bar, had 10 gears on it, and boy, oh boy, did I envy them. Bicycles, now back in fashion in a big way, seem to have 20 gears at an absolute minimum. Looking back on that bike, I think it was my favourite toy. Not everyone was like this, I have to say. Lots of kids in my generation were mad on electric trains, taking days to to set up tracks and sidings. One of these friends, Trevor, his name was Trevor Prentice. I actually did his funeral last year, which was really, which was really sad. It worked out that the distance between Birmingham St- from Birmingham New Street to Edinburgh, and then set up this track and sending his version of the Flying Scotsman three hundred times round the track. One circuit equals one mile. Looking back, it took hours. But we did stop at Crew in York for tea, so I suppose it wasn't that <laughs> bad. After the bike, as a young man grows up, he inevitably wants a car. Now I got one. It was a Ford Prefect. It cost me twenty-two pounds and ten shillings, ten bob, and I could go from naught to sixty in three point seven weeks. <laughs> I say it was my pride and joy when it was going. At the time, a friend of mine owned a little sports car. It was an MGTC. It was green and it was beautiful. It had those big headlights. It was a fantastic car and mine was not. It was all right for him for when his car went wrong, uh, which was quite often, he could fix it. And looking back, he seemed to be fixing it most of the time with his head stuck under the bonnet. Yes, I have to admit that I envied Alan that car. Not the repairing, but certainly the car and the driving. And this desire for the next big thing, the new bike, the bigger, sportier car, seems to be ingrained in our DNA. And to a degree, I'm as guilty as the next person of wanting something new and shiny. The problem is the shine goes off it mighty quickly but it does look to me that the yearning to keep up with the Joneses is what keeps the Western world ticking over. You can see the anxiety on the faces of people as they rush to work and as they come home exhausted after another weary day. The world thrives on people setting higher and higher goals for themselves and each other and then worrying if they'll meet them. And of course, when they don't, they feel as if they've failed. In the passage we've just heard, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for living without him after his departure into heaven. They'd be on their own without his direct supervision. So Jesus is saying that they should be ready because he will come back at a time when they are least expecting him. This reading gives us a picture of a new husband coming home with his bride and not wishing to be kept waiting. And Jesus wants us also to be ready and watching for him to return, and not in some sort of spiritual lethargy. Some of us also wait for this uh, this event, accepting it, but unmoved because it is so far away in the future. However, others do look forward in the hopeful expectancy of seeing Jesus face to face by keeping their devotion and commitment to him, burning bright by daily devotions, Christian living, and Christian generosity. And these servants will receive a blessing. I'm going to read verses 37 to 38. Wait a minute if so I can find it. 37 to 38. Ah, we are. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will make them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. And we know the blessing that they will receive. It will be that the Lord will serve them, have them at his table, and wait upon them and bless them. I think that these are really encouraging words because it doesn't say, blessed are those who, when the Lord comes back, are working for me, studying for me, praying to me, telling everybody about me. It says, blessed is the one who is just alert, watching and anticipating, because that person has realised that life is empty without Jesus. If you've got a job that does not satisfy you, and your finances are looking grim, and you're reeling from a relationship that's not working out, have pain that is eating you up, you will be acutely aware of the shortcomings of this world and its attitude. And we're looking to heaven for an answer. Uh, much more than others. Verse thirty-nine. I'm sorry, I've, uh, I've re- closed my book now. Why uh, of uh, twelve? Anyway, this, this verse thirty-nine heightens Jesus' call for readiness by comparing his return to a thief's robbing of a house, thereby highlighting the need for preparation because of the unexpected nature of Jesus' return catching the owner off guard. The point of the words about the thief is that Jesus' disciples must be ready for the Son of Man will come, unexpected and unannounced. It's as if Jesus is all saying to us this morning, you too be ready, because I'm coming at an hour that you do not expect, so don't be caught by surprise. I will come suddenly, and there will be no further opportunity for preparation. I don't know whether you remember, but some years ago, there seemed to be a spate of people predicting the end, the the return of Jesus and the end of the world. I remember one of them when a few thousand people gathered on Mont Blanc in the Alps, convinced that they were right and our number was well and truly up. We all know that Jesus didn't come back, so we had that smug smile on our faces thinking that those people didn't know what they were on about, and they were very unhinged anyway. But let's pause for a moment, and where does that put us all? Will Christ come back today or tomorrow or the day after that? No? That's interesting because he is coming when we least expect him. So he could be today or tomorrow. When I was preparing the sermon for this morning's service, um, I read of a person in California who goes to sleep every night with her shoes and a flashlight under her bed. When she was a child, her father required every family member to be ready to leave the house if an earthquake were to come during the night because they were prevalent at that time. She says that during a tremor, windows shatter and electricity is lost. With shoes, she can walk on broken glass and with a light, she can find her way back in the dark. She still never goes to bed without those two things. She is ready. Now, I know that people in California have a capacity to be a little bit loopy. I think it's all that sun. But on a spiritual level, this is exactly what we're talking about. Let's not be lulled into inactivity by the fact the Lord seems to be taking his time returning. We shouldn't have the attitude that we often laugh about. Jesus is coming. Look busy shouldn't be like that. We need to prepare ourselves, not in a frantic or desperate manner, but in a responsible one. We all need to accept that we may well reach our life's end before Christ returns. So don't wait until the doctor tells you you've got three weeks to live before putting your affairs in order and starting to live like a Christian should do, we'll give you money to charity or whatever it ought to be. So start today. One day, while St. Francis of Assisi was quietly hoeing his garden, he was asked, what would you do if you knew that you only had one day to live? St. Francis paused and replied, I think i would keep on hoeing my garden. Our long life ought not to determine our day-to-day agenda. We are daily to do those things which seem right, and diligent and without panic. I started this talk this morning talking about my three-wheel bicycle I had all those years ago and my desire to get a bigger one and then a car, even though it didn't work very well. This attitude, it's okay in perspective. We have all been given this life to enjoy its blessings and cycling and driving that car when I was that age was certainly one of them. And we all need to remember to build up treasure in heaven when no thief can get at our things and and moths are no more. So a little verse, a little poem to finish with. Jesus is coming. I do not know when, but of this I am sure He's coming again. So you better get ready. No time for delay. For Jesus is coming. It may be today. Amen.